Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Egypt Travel Podcast. On this episode, we actually have a really, really, really special episode because one of Egypt Elite's recent clients who just finished touring three and a half weeks all over Egypt with us and with our local team there is going to be a guest on this episode of the podcast. I had the honor and privilege to meet her and her father who were traveling together on this trip when they were in Egypt. Actually, they were there so long, their trip spanned two of my trips to Egypt. I saw them at the end of one of my trips in, I believe it was in March. Uh, oh, and then April, I, April. April. And then I came back again, uh, went home for a couple of weeks, came back on a second trip to Egypt since I've been going every month now during high season and they were still there. And so I got to see them again and spend more time with them. So I'm just going to first of all introduce Ashley, who is actually in Australia right now where she lives and works and she's doing this podcast with me on Zoom. So we're going to extract the audio. Apologies for it not being, you know, studio quality, but Zoom's the best thing we can we can work with when we have people in Australia and the US and Egypt and BFE and everywhere else. And I'm in Spain, of course, at home right now. So with that Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. I know you're a busy woman. You work in law enforcement, you mentioned, which I think is really awesome. And so I've got so many questions for you from your perspective on so many things that I think you can uniquely weigh in on for us and for all of the listeners to the Egypt Travel Podcast. Um, so I'm really, really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for making the time to do this on a Saturday in Australia. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And so, like I said, Ashley and her father booked with us a, a three-week trip all around Egypt. They got to see it from stem to stern, from north to south, east to west, all up and down the Nile Valley. The good, the bad, the ugly, the amazing. They got to see pretty much all of Egypt. Can you maybe just tell us a, a little bit about you and your background and, and why Egypt and why now? Why did you want to do this trip? So uh, my dad and I were the ones that went on this trip. And when I was nine, the uh, the Mummy movie with Brendan Fraser came out and it sparked an absolute obsession with ancient Egypt. Of course, the movie wasn't even filmed in Egypt, but it's set in Egypt and it made me so interested in ancient Egypt. And like my school did a bunch of stuff with ancient Egypt. So it kind of continued this love and interest in ancient Egypt for my whole life. And it's kind of always been there in the background. And it's always been a dream trip for my dad and I. We've watched that Mummy movie like a thousand times easily. We can do the whole movie together. We even watched it when we were in Egypt together and it was the craziest, coolest thing. We're like, we're <laughs> sitting in Egypt watching this movie in Classic. all of these places that we've seen and been and everything. And it was, oh. it was really, really cool. So um, we decided obviously with COVID, Australia has been shut for two years. And basically we hadn't seen each other for about four years because I basically did a trip to the U.S., every other year. And I went in 2018, obviously missed 2020. And then 2022, we decided we were going to go to Egypt. So once they started talking about the borders opening, I said, I don't really want to do a trip back to the States because every holiday I go on is going back to the States. So we were like, let's do it. Let's do the trip we always talked about and go to Egypt. Then from there, we started, well, I started doing a bunch of research and then in 2022, we made it. We finally did it. Wow, you did. You certainly did it. Now, you, you mentioned, um, I'm glad you mentioned doing research because that's, you know, something that I really encourage everyone to do. I mean, you know, I, the reason I started EgyptTravelBlog.com is, and this is even before I started the travel company, was just to put an information resource out there on 
everything about Egypt, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, you know, the nitty gritty, the administrative detail, stuff people don't think about, like, you know, how do you get a taxi, what to look out for, airports, everything like that. So I'm really glad to hear you talk about, you know, you were doing your research. How long did it take you to plan this trip and how much research did you do and where did you look up stuff about Egypt? Um, so I kind of started looking online. I'm in a couple of women's travel groups. And I kind of started looking in there to see what people were recommending. And it became pretty clear to me that a guide was necessary. And that's kind of my anti-travel. That's not my idea of a good time is having someone be like, oh, and go see this and go see this and look at this thing. And okay, now it's 1252. We got to get on the bus. And, you know, that's not my idea of a good time. And it was actually, I was like, oh, no, like, are we going to have a nice trip? Because this doesn't sound like the kind of holiday I like to do. I like to go out and explore and see things and it be a little more organic and natural than some kind of organized get on the bus with a whole bunch of other people that you don't know. And, you know, this was supposed to be a trip for dad and I to spend time with each other after not seeing each other for four years and not really spending a lot of time with each other because I've been living in Australia for the past 12 years. And being with a whole group of other random people didn't really sound like a great idea to me. So I started looking a little more into, you know, what about private tours? Because a lot of these women were talk about how you can just hire a car, someone will drive you around and you can hire more personal guides. And I was like, that's more interesting. That's to me, that seems a little more in control of the dynamics and not having a whole 40 group tour bus driving around. That sounds more our style of traveling and we can spend time with each other, but also see the sites. So I was on this women's travel group and I believe it was one of your past clients recommended your podcast and they obviously they recommended your services as well, but they recommended the podcast. And I started listening to the podcast just as a resource, not really necessarily considering using the company, but to use it as a resource to help plan the trip. And I found it very helpful in terms of where to go, what to see, what to skip what kind of things that I might like or might not like or what would work for us versus what wouldn't work for us because my dad's 66 and has some health issues. So we're not going out and partying on the Red Sea. You know what I mean? We're not, that's not, that's not our trip. So I was able to kind of start putting together my kind of practice itinerary of I think this is how long we might need in certain places, or this is how long I think we might need in Egypt total. So that when I actually approached people, I could say, I want a two week trip or I want a three week trip. And the more research I did, the more I was thinking we probably need about three weeks. So I think it probably took me a month or two of just kind of casual thinking about it because at that time the borders weren't open. It was kind of a pipe dream of, maybe we'll do this in a year or two kind of thing. And then they started talking about the borders opening. And I was like, well, maybe I should get onto this so that if the borders do open, we can kick this into gear for obviously some of the ideal times to visit Egypt are in kind of April, October, those kinds of times. So I thought, well, if we're going in April of 22, I better get the ball rolling on reaching out to people and kind of getting this stuff squared away. So I think I started looking into it in probably October. It was about six months ahead of time um, when we were thinking about planning. And then I think I maybe approached you about 
four or five months ahead of time, I believe. I'm, I'm not 100% sure now. It's all kind of a blur. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, we've been in touch for quite a while. And that's pretty normal, I think, in my experience. Most people that I see who become clients of ours, and even people who don't, that, you know, I, I try to help everybody, whether they're traveling with another company or us, you know, going on their own. I try to be an information resource for everybody. And uh, what I see is that people usually start planning about a year, six months to a year out. You know, we get some people literally who are like, I'm landing in Egypt. I've literally gotten emails. I'm landing in Egypt tomorrow. Can we do a three-week trip? And I'm just like, no, sorry. <laughs> you know, we can't. I mean, literally, like literally administratively, you know, we have to get, uh, people don't realize all the background stuff that goes into it, but you've seen some of it now, but you know, we have to yeah. get permits for you from the tourism police with your itinerary approved. And we have so much stuff to do that takes a minimum of 48 hours. So you literally just can't show yeah. up in Egypt and do something. So, um, you know, you have everything from that to, I've had people reach out and they say that I'm planning to go to Egypt in four years and I'm starting to plan it now. And I'm just kind of like, that's great. Uh, hit me up in two and a half years and we'll get it yeah. locked in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll answer all your questions now, but like, we, you don't want to lock in. Yeah. That's safe. Yeah, yeah. But that's, yeah. So that's uh, six months to a year is a really good. And especially now, now you all went in April of, so we're now, well, we're now in May, but you all went pretty much most of April of 2022. And so the gym was not open when you were there, the new Grand Egyptian Museum. And so for people who are listening to this in the future, We'll talk about the, you know, the places that Ash and her dad went a little bit in, in just a little bit, but I just wanted to make the point now where we're talking about planning and timing that I drive this point home every time I can. So give me yeah. two seconds to make this point to everybody <laughs> now that we're talking about it for when the gym opens, I'm telling everybody, I'm, I'm telling you, please believe me when the gym opens, everything is going to book up for two, three, four months after everything is going to book up. Even now in May of 2022, there are dates in October and November and December where there are no hotel rooms available, at least nice hotel rooms in places like Aswan, in the nicer hotels in Cairo, the domestic flights. Egypt Air only has a certain number of flights per day between Cairo and Luxor and Cairo and Aswan. They're going to book up. They're already starting to do. So please, 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 you know, normally six months is a great amount of time. Like when Ash was planning her trip, six months was perfect. If you're going to be going post gym, meaning at the end of 2022, Anytime in 2023, you can't afford to wait until a couple months before your trip. So forget my sidebar there. I just wanted to drive that point home because we are getting people, we're getting a huge uptick in, in requests for November and December this year. Everybody's getting really excited about the gym opening. And um, I mean, we're, we're starting to have to turn some people away for certain dates because uh, there just isn't capacity even, you know, six months out or more now. So, um, okay. So you said about six months of planning, you use some Facebook groups. What would you recommend for people who are starting this process? I mean, you said, you mentioned you found the podcast helpful. Like what about it? And what specifically did you find helpful? Was it the practical stuff about getting from the airport downtown, about the guides? What did you find helpful from the podcast and the blog? I mean, really everything was, especially the way that you explain why things are good and why things are bad, not just, it's not a vague kind of concept. You explain it's good because this and, or it's bad because this, or I think this way, but you might like it because of this. And to me, that was helpful because a lot of people travel very differently and sure. some people will have really good experiences with things or really bad experiences. But I think a lot of it's based on what kind of traveler you are, what kind of person you are, what kind of your interests are. And so having someone lay out well, you might find this really boring, or I found this really boring, but you might like it if you like X, Y, and Z. And, you know, if I'm that kind of person, then I can go, oh, well, I actually might want to include that in my itinerary, and I might want to take out other things. So those kind of specific things helped. Also things like how long things take mm. to help get an idea of 
can I go to the pyramids in an hour? And how long do I need in Luxor? You know, where am I going to want to spend more time? Because people have different ideas about how long you need in each place. And it was very helpful to get someone's opinions about this hotel versus this hotel or this location versus this location, recommending Soma Bay over Hergada. You know, some people might love one or the other, but for us, Soma Bay made more sense. So just having those kinds of little specific recommendations made it a lot easier to figure out how long we needed in places, highlights of things we wanted to make sure we saw, those kinds of things. It really helped kind of flesh out an itinerary so that I had a good idea of how long we're probably going to need because we didn't want to rush it. We didn't want to be like, okay, six o'clock in the morning. Now we're getting up. We've got 10 minutes to eat breakfast. Then we're out the door and we're going to go see this. We've got 45 minutes to see this and then run to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I didn't want to do that. And I knew my dad didn't have the capacity to do that. So I had to take that into account of maybe we need a really good morning where we do a whole bunch of stuff in the morning, but then the afternoon is free kind of thing. So that all helped me build an itinerary kind of just an imaginary kind of vague one where I knew how long things were going to take or I had a vague idea. That's a good point because we encounter that issue a lot in travel planning in Egypt. And I mean, if I didn't live there and work there, I wouldn't know this either. Like, I don't know the distance from, uh, from Beijing to the great wall, for example, like I've just never been to China. (laughs) I don't know. So people don't know in Egypt, what these things are like on the ground, but the biggest thing I think people don't realize, like you talked about, and it sounds like you might, this might be what we were talking about as well. You know, for example, people don't realize the pyramids are about 45 minutes West of downtown Cairo. And so it's, it's not a one hour thing. It's not a two hour thing. You know, that's a half day minimum. And they don't realize too, that the museums, at least right now, until the gym opens, the museums are back downtown. So you can't do the pyramids museum, and three other sites all on the same day. And a lot of people think you can, you know, because you go to a city like Paris or Vienna or Berlin, and you can go to four or five sites in one day because they're all in the city or London. You can't do that in Egypt. And it's just uh, really spread out. And you know, another thing a lot of people don't realize is that the tombs and temples are in Luxor, which is in the far south of Egypt. You have to fly there. A lot of people kind of think, oh, I only want to stay in Cairo and I want to see the pyramids and the tombs and temples and you know this, that, and the other. And we have to break the news to people, you know, sometimes, all right, you got to fly. Uh, it's going to take an extra two days minimum. And another, I'm glad you mentioned too about the Red Sea and, and kind of the type of Red Sea city resort place that fit your vibe and what you were looking for, because that's another thing we see a lot too. People will say, um, I want to, a lot of people have heard of Sharm El Sheikh. Sharm El Sheikh is the most famous Red Sea resort, especially for North Americans. And people want to go there, not realizing, you know, that if you go to Sharm El Sheikh, if you want kind of a city with your Red Sea experience, most people aren't going to the Red Sea because they want a city. You know, they're going to the Red Sea because they want the Red Sea and the beach and and water activities and things like that. And um, you get a much better experience doing that where you all were in Soma Bay. And a lot of people have also heard of another city called Hergada on the Red Sea. That's where a lot of Europeans, especially Eastern Europeans, go to sunbathe and spend a week in a resort and never leave. But it's, that's not what most North Americans are looking for when they're going to you know, Egypt, that they want a beautiful beach resort. They'll go to the Caribbean or they go to the Hawaii or they go to Florida. Uh, most people don't fly all the way to Egypt just for that. And so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people default to Sharm El Sheikh. And they also don't realize that requires two flights. If you're down in Luxor or Aswan, you have to fly back to Cairo, then fly over to Sharm El Sheikh. You can't drive and it is not a direct flight. And it's probably not what you're looking for anyway. So, you know, Egypt's a place where doing your research in detail 
is really necessary. Not only, you know, just so you can be the prepared traveler, but so you can plan the trip that you actually want and don't get there and be like, oh crap, we went to all the wrong places in all the wrong ways. And so that's good. I'm glad you're, you're mentioning these things because it's really important for people yeah, here. Definitely. Not just for me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, and, and in, in addition to the podcast, I did, I did a lot of research in these women's travel groups because I also wanted to be able to find a company that was used to working with women and kept those specific considerations and thoughts in mind when planning trips to make sure that the women in their group felt safe because I'm traveling but also my elderly father. Oh God, he'll be so mad calling him elderly, <laughs> but he's 66. But you know, we can't really afford to be in bad situation. So I wanted to go with a group that was going to kind of have those considerations in mind without being over the top. You know, we still want to go out and experience things, but in a safe way and make sure that wherever our base is is safe as well. So looking in these women's groups specifically, I felt was really helpful because you get that insight that I think maybe male travelers or family groups or things like that might not necessarily always think about or get in that kind of way. So I probably went through hundreds of Egypt travel posts and everything in these groups and kind of just use that to flesh out. Um, I found I believe it was three or four companies that were recommended in the groups. Um, I reached out to all of them, you guys included, obviously, and you guys were the ones that just wowed me off my feet. So that's why we traveled with you guys. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, what was it about us that you found that was different? Why us? Uh, what was different with the other Oh, well, from the very first, your website to be able to build the trip, I found was really helpful and that you gathered a lot of information and asked questions that I hadn't even really thought about to help kind of build the trip. Even from the research that I had done, I was able to select, oh yes, I do want to do these things or, oh yes, these are other things I want to include. And then you guys obviously had all of that information. So there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth in order to give me your initial idea of what the trip was going to be, how long it was going to be and like what it would cost and everything. There wasn't a huge back and forth about getting all the details. Whereas other places that I went, it was kind of vague and I would either have to send them an itinerary of what I wanted and wait for them to get back to me about what they thought. And uh, I wasn't really impressed. Some of the places that I reached out to, they didn't seem to be listening to what I was, because I said I wanted a three-week trip because I knew that we would probably need that long without cramming in a whole bunch of stuff. And I went back and forth with a couple of places and they never would give me a three-week trip. It would be like a two-week trip or a 18-day trip, but never three weeks or more. And I was like, no, this is, so if you're not listening to me at this stage of the interaction, why, how do I trust you to listen to me when we're there? And I need, you know, I need something or, or later on that kind of thing. So I wasn't really super impressed, but you guys came back to me, you had this beautiful presentation, an explanation of everything, all of the fees, where we were staying, what we might do. It was just this awesome, you know, the, the details matter to me, especially for something like this, where I'm no longer in control of the planning. And that's really hard to let go of where yeah. I no longer, I'm not the one booking these things. I'm not the one planning. I'm not the one making the decisions. I'm handing it over to someone else. So when I'm handing that power over to someone else, 
I have to be very confident that they know what they're doing and they're actually competent to do these kinds of things. And they're going to listen to what I want out of this trip because, you know, there's no use in handing over to someone and you're just going to show up and have an itinerary that you're not super happy with. So from the very get-go, it was amazing. And it was the attention to detail and there was consideration and thought. And for me, and also for dad, it was the explanations of why, of why we're doing this, of why we're going in this order and why you're flying instead of driving or why you're doing this and that. And there were explanations behind it. I wasn't just handed an itinerary and said, here you go, off you go. Do you like this itinerary or not? Well, I don't know if I like it because you haven't explained to me why I should like it or why I shouldn't like it or why it works for a 66 year old man with health problems and his 32 year old daughter. You know what I mean? There's no explanation of why this works for you specifically. So you guys had that personal touch of this is why this might be a good idea for you guys specifically, not just any random traveler to Egypt. So that, that really wowed us from the very first email. Yeah, it's really um, easy for, especially for companies that specialize in Egypt like we do, and then companies that are in Egypt. So obviously they only do Egypt because they are an Egyptian company and, you know, they're Egyptians and they grew up and that's their country and they know it really well. And so it's hard for them sometimes to realize, oh, wait a minute, people from 5,000 miles away don't know that Luxor is not driving distance from Cairo. They don't know you have to take a flight there. They don't know that, you know, you can't drive through Middle Egypt. You can't visit some cities. You can't get permission. You know, so it's really, it's really easy in the travel industry for people to default to just giving you an itinerary and saying, this is it, and not thinking they need to explain it. Because I think that's one of the things that I really like about what I do is being a foreign, being, you know, an American who works in Egypt. And, you know, most of our clientele are American, uh, some Brits, some Australians, some other European nationalities, but mostly American and Canadian. And and I think it really, in my experience, it really makes a difference to have someone who's, who's native, a native speaker of your language, who's from where you're from, and for 20 years, who does what you're going to be doing. And, you know, like I feel like, and I'm, I hope I'm not just tooting my own horn here, but I feel like I know things that you're going to worry about better than somebody who's not a foreigner visiting Egypt. And it's probably the same thing. You know, I, w- I always recommend to people, you know, if somebody's from, for example, Brazil or India or China, you know, I tell them I'm more than happy to help you, but I just want you to know, you know, our primary focus is on, you know, native English speaking countries and nationalities and populations. And there are probably things that I don't know that Chinese groups need or want or concerned about that I just would have no idea about. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we do so well in Egypt is because we're American and we're American run. We have a local Egyptian staff, obviously, as well. But there are things that if you grew up there and you're not familiar, you know, a lot of times people too in Egypt, they've never traveled, you know, they've never been a tourist. They've never been on a tour in Europe or in Asia or North America, and they don't know what it's like to be on a bus and be told, you know, you have 10 minutes at the site and that sucks, you know, <laughs> but they think it's normal, you know, because every most yeah. people do it together. But um, yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear that because we that's what we really try. I mean, that's how we really try to distinguish ourselves as Western led company, Western quality standards, thinking about things that you as a tourist from North America or Australia or Europe are going to need and be concerned about and want to do that, you know, if I'm not from there or I've never been a tourist in another country I might not necessarily know or think about. And I think that was a big one for dad, especially because my dad had never traveled internationally other than going to a a Mexican resort maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago or something. He had never traveled internationally. So this was his first trip. So for him, I think it was also 
it made him feel good that someone was looking out from an American perspective as well. So I think that made him feel a lot more comfortable about going somewhere to where, you know, things were very, very different from where yeah. we're from. So. That made me think of one other question too on the same topic. I, I didn't even think about this until you just mentioned that, but you know, cause you know this now, and I've probably explained it to you before when you were started working with us, but I'm just curious so we do things a little bit differently in addition to being, you know, an American led company in Egypt and, you know, having Americans be the ones communicating with you. We're not only the ones communicating with you before the trip and helping you plan it, but we're the ones carrying out the trip as well. And then staying in touch with you, obviously like this, even after you get back, we consider ourselves a full cycle before, during, and after the trip travel company, which is a hybrid model. Most companies are either the tour operator on the ground or they're the, the retail sales travel company in the US, in Europe, in Australia. Did you consider going with any of those that are sort of marketed as a travel company, but they're not actually the tour operator in Egypt, they subcontracted out? Because there are some big names and there are some really big, yeah, nice there's some companies. really big names. There's some big names that are popular, especially in the women's travel that run a lot of women's only groups or women's only trips. And they're very popular in these groups. But a lot of them are much bigger groups. They don't necessarily tailor to the small, basically two people kind of groups. So I kind of looked at them, but they all seemed like they were bigger group kind of things. So to me, that became not what we were interested in and not really my interest. And the fact that your group and a couple of the other ones that I reached out to were just specifically in Egypt, I felt that with that kind of more narrow focus that you would get a better experience than like a very large travel group. That's not really what we were looking for. We want someone who was specialized where we were going. That's a really good point because a lot of people don't realize that, the, I mean, there are huge names in travel in Egypt, like Abercrombie yeah. and Kent, and then, uh, you know, Intrepid is an Australian company that's been Intrepid's in Egypt. Intrepid's huge. And, I mean, mm-hmm. even like Contiki and things like that, those ones all come up when you search travel in Egypt or like Egypt tour guides, those kinds of things. And especially coming from Australia, Intrepid's always like the first one that comes up because they're from here. So they're very popular. You know, you talk to another Australian and Intrepid Travel comes up because they're a very big name. Contiki is another big one. But I didn't think that that was going to be a good vibe for dad and I, because I definitely didn't want to be a part of another group. You know, I know a lot of people like the group travel, but that's a lot of personalities to manage and I can't imagine doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And you're more limited, you know, you're more limited and and your schedule is affected by other people. If somebody's late, then you get less time at the next place. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. I used to do group trips 10 years ago and we stopped doing those now and all of ours are private and custom, but yeah, I mean, the thing people don't realize, and just a note to listeners as well on this topic, And this is why I brought it up. You know, many people do travel with these big names. And like Ashley mentioned, um, you know, Kentucky, Intrepid, Abercrombie, G Adventures, there are a lot of them. And again, those are right for some people. The kind of trip Ashley and her dad did may not be what everybody wants. You know, they wanted a custom private trip where if they wanted to change their plans in a day, they could do that. If they wanted to start later in the day or earlier in the morning, they could do that. They weren't bound by other people's schedule or a group schedule. But other people may want to do a group trip, especially if you're a solo traveler, you can meet some other people on a great Intrepid Adventures trip. And that tends to be a younger demographic as well. But here's the piece of advice I'd give for anybody who is going to do a trip with a company who does multiple countries. So for example, if you're booking with Abercrombie and they do a safari in Kenya and a trip to South Africa and they do Egypt, they do China, they do South America, Antarctica, here's the thing you need to do. Find out who the local subcontractor is. And that's who you need to be researching because that is who is going to make or break your experience. Whoever's going to be actually carrying out your trip on the ground 
who are the drivers? Who are the guides? Who are the admin staff? Who are the people going to the hotels to make sure the tourism police have a copy of your itinerary and your permit? You know, the, that's the company, the local contractor that's going to be doing that type of stuff. And so if you are with sort of a, you know, white labeled big travel company coming to Egypt, you need to find out who the local Egyptian operator is. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize, you know, that we do differently. We are the ones doing that. We don't subcontract out to a local Egyptian company. We are the one, the local operator in Egypt as well because of the uh, license arrangement we have on the ground. But yeah, no, I was just curious if you if you looked at any of those companies and because most people, I think, like you mentioned to, or, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, reputation, experience, recommendations from other people are really important. And most people will kind of just, not most, maybe a lot of people will kind of default to the reputation of a name. You know, uh, this travel company I've heard of, maybe I've traveled with them elsewhere, so I'm going to trust them to go to Egypt. But people really need to look into who are you actually going to be in the car with on the ground? That's another thing too. You know, if somebody can't give you the name of your guide and driver before you get to Egypt, that's a red flag. You know, that yeah. means that they don't know them. <laughs> it could be yeah. anybody. And I'm sure you can, and I'd love to maybe get into a little bit of this next and talk about your experiences in these different cities and with the people you met there. But the people you're with, your guide, your driver, your admin, your things like that can make or break a trip. Oh, absolutely. And, like the guy, yeah. the guides, especially if you have a guide who is maybe not really, you know, into it or not super motivated or whatever, that could totally change the whole trip. You know, I mean, we were in places sometimes that we could hear other guides and we were like, oh, we're so lucky. <laughs> like, <we're, laughs> we, we, you know, like we're lucky we don't have them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. 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 I mean, I hate, I hate to, you know, to be mean, but I really do think there, no. there are so many guys does, in Egypt, and so many of them are just mediocre at best. It's just a reality. It sounds mean. It sounds, you know, I just hate to say it, but this is reflected in, I mean, one of my biggest challenges in Egypt is finding quality staff, finding that like top two or 3%. And I describe it to people as like, it's like professional dating in Egypt. Every time I go to Egypt, I have to have dinner, coffee, second coffee, a second dinner, a lunch with three or four different guy, new guides on each trip trying to find new people. Because, you know, I might interview 10 and I might end up hiring one, or I might interview 50 and end up hiring one or two because there are so many. And so we really try to, to choose the right people. But let me ask you about that. So you get to Cairo, you're in the hotel, your first day, well, your first day you had a rest day, which was actually really smart. Yeah. And that was, that was very helpful. And I think it was really good for dad in particular to kind of have a day where we weren't getting up and running off somewhere. And we kind of just got to hang out and see each other and talk. And that was nice. Yeah. I think for him, especially with the first big international trip, you know, he had, um, I think it was, I think it's like seven hours from Chicago to London, seven or nine. And then it was another four or five or something to Cairo, I think. And then mine was 15 to Dubai from Sydney and then another four from Dubai to Cairo. So we both had pretty big travel days on the first day. So I think for people who have the time, if you're there for more than, you know, about seven or 10 days, a recovery day on your first day in Egypt is a really good idea. And, you know, I like to recommend that people just, you can leave it open. And if you, if you, have tons of energy that afternoon and you want to go do something, we can go do something with you. We can take you somewhere. But I like for people to give themselves the option to have a yeah. recovery day and to it relax. It was a very because... good, it was a very good recommendation and very well taken. So, because <laughs> it really started us off awesome for the next day. So, and you know, for those who don't have time to do that, that's okay too. I mean, the, the good thing is 99% of people, when they go to Egypt, the first thing they want to do is see the pyramids and you're running on adrenaline <laughs> at that point. If you've been up all night, haven't slept on the plane, <laughs> rolled out of bed and have to get going just because you're on a tighter schedule, 
usually the adrenaline and the excitement of being able to say, I'm getting ready to see the pyramids in Egypt is enough to keep you going. So let me ask you what, so after you did your recovery day, your next day was going to the pyramids. What was that like? What was it like when you finally, depending on the route we take that day on the roads, you know, sometimes you come around a corner and you see them. Uh, Sometimes you start to see them, you know, grow over the horizon as you get closer to the, the compound. What was that like finally getting to see the pyramids of Egypt on that second day? Well, we actually went to the Bent Pyramid and the Red Pyramid first. We started off in the morning seeing them. And that was an amazing experience because there was no one there. That was a move by our guide that said, let's go there first thing because it's quiet. We got there. There was no one else there. I got to go down into both pyramids completely alone by myself and was in a pyramid alone. It was the craziest experience. So cool. They literally, I I walked up these big steps and I watched them flip the little generator on to turn the lights on for me. So I knew I was going in there by myself. It was so crazy. It was awesome. I got to go be in there. I've got videos of myself being like, I'm in a pyramid alone. How wild (laughs) is this? How cool is this? But that was a move. That was a choice made by the guide to say, Hey, we should do this first. And as a tourist, you have no idea. I don't know what time is a good time to go to the Great Pyramid versus what time is a good time to drive out here and go do this one and what, you know, vice versa. But they know that. And that's like you've been saying, the importance of having people who are on the ground and our local staff. And they have these insights about what, you know, when things are busy and when things are quiet and when the big tour buses show up and, and those kinds of things that, you couldn't possibly fathom as a tourist trying to plan this on your own or trying to organize this alone. And we had so many of these sliding door moment experiences where it would have been a totally different experience had our guide not had that insight and that knowledge to just tweak our schedule. And we had so many experiences where we were places completely by ourselves because the guides just had that little bit of local insight. So that's how I started my my real first day in Egypt was I got to go in a pyramid by myself and it was wild. But then as you say, wow. you're going to the Great Pyramid and you have no idea. Like I've so I've now been in these pyramids and I'm like, oh okay, you know, they're pretty big and whatever. And then you come up to the Great Pyramid and you're like, holy cow, this is crazy. Cause you're just driving up and you come around that corner and all of a sudden they're right there in front of you and you're like, whoa, this is not the same as the one that we just saw. This is mind blowing. And it's right on the edge of the city. And it's crazy. So that was just mind blowing. And then we're there. And we keep saying to each other, we're like, we're in Egypt. We're looking at the pyramids. We're, we're in Egypt, like looking at the pyramids. This has been 23 years in the making. This is crazy. So it was truly awesome. It was it was absolutely wild. And then I rode on a camel from the pyramids across the desert and we rode to the nine pyramids lounge and had lunch where we continued the experience of we're having lunch in Egypt next to the pyramids. And it was just, we couldn't believe it. We was, I was, it just, it didn't feel real. It was just, it's just absolutely unbelievable that we're, I'm literally sitting in Egypt with my dad having lunch looking at the pyramids right next to us. It was amazing. It was incredible. And that was our first morning in Egypt, basically. (laughs) So that really, it was, uh, it was crazy. 
Wow. Yeah. You know, people ask me all the time um, if it ever gets old. And my answer is always absolutely not. Like I have that same experience every time I go as well, you know, where I'm like, I can't believe I'm at the pyramids. I can't believe I'm having lunch overlooking the pyramids. And it, it really does never get old because it really is that awe-inspiring. And that's why I love to hear people. That's why I asked you that. I love to hear people's impression. I love to hear how they describe it, what they were feeling, what they were thinking, you know, the, the pinching themselves. Am I really here? Yeah. Are we really in Egypt? <laughs> it's amazing. Like it just never gets old hearing that. I really love it. And thank you for sharing that. It gives me like, it gets me excited every time I hear yeah. it. Um, <laughs> But um, and just to give everyone a little bit of context. So Ash was talking about she mentioned, first of all, going down to the Red Pyramid and Bent Pyramid. For those who don't know, you know, there, there are what we generally call the pyramids, uh, which are the pyramids of Giza. And there are three king's pyramids there, the, the big three ones there. Those are the most famous ones, including the Great Pyramid is there. The last wonder of the ancient world still standing. But there are also there are over 100 other pyramids still standing all over, mostly in northern Egypt. And a lot of people go see most most tourists just go to the pyramids of Giza especially if you're on one of these big group tours they only have time for those pyramids they're the most famous and if you only have time for any pyramids those are the ones to go see but for those who have extra time and Ash and Glenn definitely did we also love to take people a little bit further south of Giza to another site called Saqqara and another site called Dashur and I'm actually glad that Maha Maha was the guide with you right yeah in Cairo oh, yeah so Maha. Maha's she's so I love good. her yeah, she's like, she's like my sister. I absolutely love her. So she um, took you down there first, which was really smart because like I said, a lot of the big tour buses, the big tour groups, they'll go to just the pyramids of Giza. And when they start in the morning, that's where they go first. And, you know, some people have to go there first and that's okay. You're, it's still going to be amazing. The pyramids are never not yeah. amazing. So. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you could go there. You could go there at any time, any day, yeah. any, however busy, however not busy, whatever. It's going to be mind blowing. So. Yeah. Well, for those who, um, you know, have a full day to go see all the pyramids that day or have two days to go see them over two days, what Ash is talking about is actually a really smart uh, strategy because uh, number one, you can, you can miss a lot of the crowds because most of the big tours don't go down to the other pyramids at Saqqara and Dashur. But I really like to suggest people go to those first as well, because those are the older pyramids. So Saqqara, you know, is where the step pyramid is, where they were kind of uh, experimenting with pyramid building. Because they used to have what's called mastabas, which are like two-level uh, little mini, it's not even a pyramid, just like a two-level uh, structure. And then they started adding another level on top and another level on top, making them smaller and smaller. And you can see at Saqqara, where the step pyramid, how they first started adding new more levels. And then they were kind of like, oh, this is a pyramid shape. Why don't we smooth it out and make it a you know a smooth-sided pyramid? And so then, you know, at Dashur, where they built the, the bent pyramid and the red pyramid, that's when you start to see, you know, the first true pyramids. And, you know, you can see how they made a mistake when they were building the red or the bent pyramid. They got the angle wrong and they had to correct it and go in real quick. And so it, it literally looks bent. It literally is a bent-sided pyramid because they made a mistake. And then with the red pyramid, they finally got it right. But the good thing about going there first, Sakar and Dashur, is that you can see the evolution of pyramid building. You can kind of grasp the mistakes they made, how they corrected. And you can see how they got to building the big pyramids that we know and that are so famous at Giza. And so when you see the older ones first, and then you go to Giza, it's kind of, you know, when you see the red pyramid and bent pyramid or step pyramid, you're, you're still like, whoa, you know, it's amazing. And then you go to the next one and it's even more amazing. And then you go to Giza and it just blows you away. And the Great Pyramid is there. And so I really like that progression, like yeah, you're talking about. Was. And that's the cool. reason. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we like to take people down there first. If you have the time to do that, not only the crowds, most people don't go there. Or if they go there, they go there later in the day. But you can see, you know, you can you can be wowed in greater <laughs> increments, <laughs> exponentially wowed throughout the day. Yeah. 
So I'm glad you mentioned too, Nine Pyramids Lounge. That's a really good uh, spot for lunch. A lot of people you know, used to go to Mina House, to the Mina House Marriott mm-hmm. Hotel right by the pyramids for lunch. They have a garden. It has, you know, it, it overlooks part of the pyramids, but the Nine Pyramids Lounge just opened actually during the pandemic era. And so a lot of people don't know about it. Most people have never been, even if they've been to Egypt before. And it is the Amazing. most spectacular view of the pyramids. I mean, and the, the other thing too is places like that that have a monopoly on the view and the experience usually have mediocre or bad food. I really love the food at Nine Pyramid Zones. What did you think? I about really the food liked it too. I thought the food was awesome. And Maha was very kind enough, even though she was fasting, gave us some awesome food recommendations and they blew my mind. They were incredible. I spent the rest of the trip looking for similar menu items and the food was just so good. And we were just sitting there like, and we just kept doing it. We kept going we are literally eating lunch next to the pyramid. This is so crazy. And, but the food was truly, it was awesome. I mean, I can't say a bad thing about any of the food we ate in Egypt. It was, it was awesome everywhere we went. Everything was great. So we were lucky and uh, no, but I have to say, I think I read reviews where they said the food was kind of mediocre, but I didn't have that experience. That definitely was not our experience. We were constantly wowed at how flavorsome all the meat was and all the food was just so good. And, you know, the service was lovely and we, we had a great time there. So Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned reviews because that's another thing that just baffles me a little bit about Egypt. And I don't know if it's just Egypt or reviews in general in other places, but you know, I don't know tourism in China. I don't know tourism in Brazil. I know tourism in Egypt. And I can say, sometimes I read reviews online of places and I'm just like, what Egypt did these people visit? Because, you know, (laughs) and I tell people, who do you want to trust? Someone who's been there once or someone who's been there 20 times? You know, I mean, I don't know why people would say the food there is bad. Maybe they had one bad thing. Maybe actually they just had something they didn't like. We had a variety. We both ate different things and we got two or three appetizers to kind of split and try different things. And I was in love with all of it. And I actually took some of the vine leaves back to the hotel later. And when I was hungry at some weird hour, because I was still in Australian time, I had them and they were still delicious, even though they had been, you know, in the fridge for a couple of hours. So it was still good even later. (laughs) Yeah, like I I generally like to tell people, you know, don't, uh, well, let me say this way. I I won't say don't trust reviews online in Egypt. I would just say cross-reference your information, get a second opinion, a third opinion, you know, and consider the depth of the review. You know, has somebody been there once? Or have they been there multiple times? Is somebody, you know, do they have a bad experience or are they talking, you know, objectively and, and, and generally about a place, whether it's a hotel, restaurant, et cetera? To be honest, the Nine Pyramids Lounge, even if the food was mediocre, it doesn't matter because the view is so good <laughs> that even if the food, even if that was true, I don't care. Like I'll eat, you know, mediocre food next to the pyramids. Cool. That's fine. <laughs> but I thought the food was great. I had and just so people know too, that is a place where you need a reservation and it does book up. And I guarantee you when it comes to November, December, it will be booked up. Don't try to be a walk-in. It's just not going to happen. They have limited seating there. It's beautiful. It's large, but with the volume of tourists that go to the pyramids every day, especially in their high season, it's going to be booked up solid. So um, reservations needed for that place. What about, let's, let's move a little bit further South. Down. Well, actually, sorry, let's stay in Cairo for a minute. So I, I was just like, oh, pyramids done. Let's leave Cairo. But there's a lot more in Cairo <laughs> besides the pyramids. <laughs> Um, yeah. What about what were your impressions of the rest of Cairo? It's one of the largest cities in the world. It's gritty. It's dirty. Lots of honking. What were just your impressions of Cairo generally? Oh. And, and so we probably spent on our rest day. We spent most of the day sitting on the balcony of the hotel watching the traffic because the traffic <laughs> is insane. Just pure chaos. 
all the honking, all of the people just walk across the street. No one cares. The lines on the road, as Maha said, are just there for decoration. There's no order. There is no anything. And we just sat there for literally hours watching people nearly get hit people like you know zooming around it was crazy to watch you know it went but it was really kind of interesting but that was most of our rest day activity that we spent out there going oh oh no oh geez like oh that was so close oh did you see that guy we had a good quite funny just kind of watching the city happen as we were kind of up there watching in it's chaotic but it's also kind of I don't know. It was, it was nice. Like I actually, I liked it. I like the busyness and all the activity and there's just a lot of energy. And especially because we were there during Ramadan after Iftar, everything becomes kind of like a little party and ever it's very lively and very exciting. And then we came back during Eid and it was a different kind of like joyful party atmosphere as well. So it was really kind of cool to be there during those different times and experience that kind of cultural difference that's so different, obviously, from Chicago and Sydney. So, yeah, so Ash makes a couple of really good points here. One is Ramadan. You know, so Ramadan right now is in April, or this year it was in April. It moves 11 days earlier every year. And there are some differences in traveling in Egypt and the water Middle East during Ramadan versus not. And so one of them is, you know, like she mentioned earlier, when they were at Nine Pyramids Lounge, the guide Maha was fasting. So, you know, Muslims are going to, most of them are going to not eat during the day, and they're going to wait until the sun goes down to break the fast and eat. So, you know, that, that's a little bit difficult and challenging sometimes. Some They don't even usually drink water as well. And so you can imagine when Ramadan's in August and June and July, you have to go around all day at all these sites, not uh, drinking water or eating anything. But, you know, that's for locals. Tourists obviously aren't expected to do that. And restaurants are still open, especially in tourist areas. So you don't have a problem getting food during the day. You know, she also mentioned uh, the traffic. That's another thing I want to say something about too, because I, I think as you correctly describe it, it absolutely is chaos. You look at it, you know, like you mentioned, I can imagine you and your dad sitting on the balcony of the hotel, looking down at downtown Cairo and just going, where or what planet did we land on? Because traffic in Cairo is crazy. Like I said, there are 23 million people there, probably just as many cars. And, you know, it's a developing country. I mean, Egypt is a developing country still, third world, whatever you want to call it. And luckily the pollution, things like that, the smog has gotten definitely better over the past two decades since I first moved to Egypt. But the thing to realize about the traffic too, and I think you probably picked up on this pretty quick after riding in it a little bit, is that it's chaos, but it's like organized chaos. It just kind of works. You know, like Ash mentioned, people are walking across the five lane highways uh, while traffic zooming by and the cars go around them. And if somebody walked out into a five lane highway in the United States, everybody Done. would slam on brakes. That would be a huge, <laughs> a huge uh, traffic jam for 10 miles. But in Egypt, five, 10 people walk around, walk out in a five lane highway and just cross the traffic and the cars go around them and nobody stops. And it just kind of works. You rarely, rarely see traffic accidents. And the thing about the honking too, is it's ubiquitous. You hear it all day long, all the time you're on the highway, but there's a system to it. It's not honking like we honk. No. When, when we go to Egypt, we have to get out of our American mindset. Things happen differently. there are in different ways for different reasons. And uh, honking all the time is not screw you, get out of the way. It's more like, <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm coming, I'm passing you on the left. Hey, I just want to make sure you see me. Hey, I'm going to zoom by you and I want to make sure that you know I'm there. It's communication in Egypt, but you know, yeah. we call it like the, the Cairo Symphony Orchestra or the Egyptian Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the sounds of the city are just chaotic. They don't make sense at first. They're overwhelming. And you kind of have to be forewarned about this stuff so that you can not only not be flustered, but appreciate it for what it is. When we were in the car the first time, I felt a bit stressed when people are honking because obviously it's such an aggressive thing to do in Western countries. If you're honking, 
you know, like if you're honking in Chicago, you're probably getting shot at, you know what I mean? Like, you know, people, (laughs) you're just not, you know, like, come on, like, it's a very aggressive action. And so maybe you're not paying attention and you're looking out the window you're, and then someone's honking and you're like, what's happening? What happened? Who's doing what? Like who cut someone off? Are we almost in an accident? And then by the end, you know, people are honking and you're just sleeping in the car. You know, you're not even paying attention. So it <laughs> yeah. was at first, it was quite a almost stressful thing. You're just watching this happen and you're like, oh, 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 that car's getting really close. Oh, geez. And, and then by the end, you're like, you know, dad wanted to drive. No, you're not. Absolutely not. No, no. And it was chaos, but then you kind of just get used to it and you appreciate it. And I actually did appreciate it because the traffic flows so much better because people just go and it makes a lot more sense sometimes than the way we do things. Yeah. And you know, actually, you just made me think about something I haven't thought about mentioning before to people, but I think it's it's uh, uh, really enlightening, and especially in context of this conversation is, you know, we actually have to train our staff in Western quality standards and Western ways and to do things very specifically in ways that foreign tourists, especially Western tourists, like and expect. And one of the things that we actually have to train drivers to do differently is, you know, they naturally, when they're driving, they want to honk. You know, when they're passing somebody, when they're coming up on somebody, they want to communicate by honking. And it's it's off-putting to us. Um, like you mentioned, when you first got in the vehicle, you know, hearing all the other people honking was kind of was stressing you out. And so we have to actually train them to not honk or to do it minimally. And that the funny thing is, though, until they get used to it, that stresses them out to not be able yeah. to, you know, come up <laughs> on a car and burp, 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 burp. Yeah. you see, they want to do it. They stop and, yeah. and they kind of look and see if you caught it. But it's the opposite for them to not be able to honk and communicate and let people know you're coming stresses them out because they're thinking, okay, is this car going to you know, run into me because he doesn't know I'm coming up because he might not look in his mirror. So that's been a funny thing too, is they'll still honk once in a while, but I, ca- I even mm-hmm. see them when I'm riding with them, I see them kind of like going to do it and stopping, catching and looking over to see if I saw, <laughs> you know, but um, that's the thing people don't realize is that we have to train local staff to do things and not do things to maintain quality. Another example, and people don't even, like, I didn't even realize this before I moved to Egypt and lived there. I never even would have thought of this. And it's the same for them. You know, they do things in a certain way they've always done. And it's very practical and makes a perfect sense. And they just never would have thought that we would see that as weird. And another example, I remember 10 years ago, there was a fuel shortage in Egypt. And we, um, you know, we, sometimes we have to drive long distances. And I remember we had some clients going to the Red Sea from Cairo one day, and that's about a five hour drive. And they specifically wanted to drive instead of fly. And so um, the driver had to get extra fuel to carry with us. And, you know, he just thought very practically, like he would do with anybody, you know, any Egyptian in the car would have no problem with this because they think, you know, this is okay. And this is normal. But, you know, he got fuel and put it in a fuel can and put it in the back of the van. And the first thing I noticed when I got in the van to do the quality check was I smell gasoline. And he was like, well, yeah, of course I have a fuel tank in the back of the van. And I'm like, uh, okay, you can't have a five hour ride with the vehicle smelling like gasoline. And he's like, but why not? We need it. I mean, we might need it. And I'm just like, you know, so we had these experiences where to them that made the most, he was that he thought he was doing a really good thing, taking the initiative. We're not going to have to stop for gas and wait in a one hour line. We're going to have gas. We'll pull over. We'll gas up. We'll go. But he kind of didn't think about on a luxury trip, you can't get in a van and have it smell like gasoline. So (laughs) it's been back and forth. My colleagues there in Egypt, I mean, I love them. Like I, I know their families. I love them like family. And they have trained me in a lot of stuff that I never would have thought about, never would have thought to think about, you know, then, and they even tell me, you know, I have many people I've worked with for years and they're just like, you know what? I've never thought of doing it this way. This makes perfect sense. 
I never knew that Americans would like this and would expect this or would want this. And yeah, like I'm going to start doing it this way for myself now. So yeah, there's there's so much that people don't realize that goes on behind the scenes when you're working in a place like Egypt. You know, I always tell people, I've mentioned this to you when we were there, but I tell people if I only have two crises a day, it's a really good day. And, you know, you usually expect a morning crisis and an afternoon crisis every single day in Egypt because it's Egypt and everything's chaotic. Everything goes wrong. It's like they probably invented Murphy's Law. So if you only have two crises a day, it's a really good day. If you have three, you're starting to have a challenging day. If you have one, (laughs) you have to worry because you're like, okay, I've only had one crisis. Something's going to happen. When is the next one going to happen? But that's what working in Egypt is like. I mean, I still wouldn't trade it for anything. But let me ask you, too, what about going outside of Cairo? What were your impressions of Luxor and Aswan? Because those are very different cities than Cairo, right? Yes. So Luxor definitely feels a little more rural compared to Cairo. It's still busy. It's slightly more touristy because obviously there are so many tombs and temples and everything like that. But I really liked Luxor. I could have easily spent another day or two there just exploring. There's so much. to. I mean, you can maybe get a little tomb and templed out after you've spent days and days and days and another temple and another tomb and another temple and another tomb. But I probably could have spent another day or two in Luxor just exploring and getting around. It's a very easy city to kind of, you know, you can take a little boat across from one side to the other. And it's quite a interesting little city. And then Aswan is so quiet and so different and so kind of isolated from the rest of Egypt. And it was a very calm and much more chill vibe. And even the markets were bustling and busy, but they weren't as kind of hectic and chaotic as Cairo and Luxor. So everywhere we went had a very, very different vibe from the next place that we went. So it was a totally different experience everywhere. What did you think about the temples in Luxor? Oh, just mind-blowing. Truly, that was everywhere we went kind of just built upon the last place. And that was what part of our itinerary, you know, I don't think this necessarily was intentional, but we ended up almost going in historical order as we traveled down the Nile and then popped back up to Alexandria. Everything built upon the next thing that we went to. It was like, oh, okay, so this happened. And then they would start talking about the history of where we were. And it had just been where we just had left from. So everything just built and built and built and built. And so, you know, traveling down the Nile and then up to the top, it everything was in historical order. And so it was kind of a natural progression of everything. And it was quite, it was kind of cool to do it in that, in that way and kind of have that experience of everything just kind of fit together very nicely. So it was, it was awesome. But I think without people realizing it, other than the pyramids, the tombs and temples in Luxor are what you think about when you think about Egypt is these beautiful columns and the tombs that you're going down into and and all of that. That's kind of after the pyramids, that's what people imagine. You know, you feel like you're in Indiana Jones or the mummy or, you know, like you're standing in this incredible history and you're just right there. And it's just, everything is so old and so many of the things are so still beautifully preserved and it's amazing that you're standing where two or 3,000 years ago they were building this stuff and just mind-blowing, just awesome there. And I definitely I definitely could have spent more more time there. I mean, we already had an exceptionally long trip, but you know, if I, if I ever manage to make it back there again, I will definitely spend a couple of days in, in Luxor, really exploring the things that I didn't see this time around and just kind of going back to the things I did see and experiencing it again. So yeah, that was, 
I loved it there. So Nice. And what about in Aswan? You went to Abu Simbel, which many people also don't realize is yes. three hours south of Aswan. If you drive three to three and a half hours driving one way by road through the desert, literally <laughs> down on the border with Sudan, one of the hottest places on earth. And um, you, But you all went by air. You flew. What made you decide yes. to want to fly? And do you recommend that for other people? Uh, I definitely would recommend flying. We actually met a couple when we were on the Nile cruise. And we stayed in the same hotel in Aswan and they drove and we flew. And when we saw them later in the day, they were very, very tired and very, very upset that they had driven. (laughs) Whereas we flew and it was a totally different experience. It was awesome. We got there. We got off the plane, just basically walked off because you don't need to bring your luggage because that's at the hotel or if you do it the way we did it where it's just a day trip. You don't bring your luggage. You just, whatever you need for your couple of hours at those temples. And then you get back on the plane and you go back and it's very fast. And you're there before all the tour buses. You're there before everything. When you get off the plane, you can take a little golf cart. They drive you right down. So you don't have to walk up. It's a very big hill to walk up. Dad definitely was not walking it. So we got a little golf cart, took the golf cart right up to the temple and We'd beat all the crowds. It was amazing. I think I showed you the photo. There's literally no one else there. <laughs> so it's yeah, pretty rare. We, it's pretty rare we, to get a. We had a. Like it's worth going. Um, I think dad, dad said that that was his biggest highlight for him. That was the most amazing, impressive one that he really loved going to. But they're not very big temples. And there's not a lot to do other than just seeing them. So I think it would be quite taxing to basically spend six hours in a car round trip for basically like maybe a one and a half, two hour worth of sightseeing because there's really not much else to do there. Um, You could, you know, I mean, you could make a day of it for sure to kind of stretch it out, but it would be a big, big day in terms of sitting in a car for a really long time to really only be there for a very short period of time. Whereas the flying, it was kind of like, oh, we popped in, we saw everything we wanted to see. And you know, it was the the time between flights was really perfect. We got to see everything. I didn't feel rushed or anything. Then we were done, got back in, went to the airport and back in Aswan for dinner, you know? So yeah, it was, nice. uh, yeah, it was good. Yeah. That's a good point about Abu Simbel that I think is, is really good for people to hear from you because a place like Karnak or the pyramids, you know, you can go and you can walk around, you can spend hours and hours and hours there. Abu Simbel yeah. is just two structures. It's the temple of Ramses II and the temple of Nefertari side by side on the edge of Lake Nasser. And yeah, I mean, most people spend an hour, hour and a half max there. And so it really does become, you know, weighing the pros and cons of driving versus flying. You're going to, are you going to really spend six to seven hours on the road? to spend an hour to an hour and a half at two small temples. They are amazing. But, you know, again, like you have to weigh whether this is worth it personally. Good, yeah. And flying is a good option. You know, like you mentioned, your your dad, I mean, even, you know, you're, you're very young and your dad probably would have really found that to be not well, too fun. To, to, it would have been hard. Yeah, yeah, I think it would have been. But, and there is a difference too, I think, because Americans are such road trip people, you know, like we are, let's get in the car. And especially if you're from the Midwest, if it's within a 12 hour driving radius, we're not flying. We're driving baby. Like there is no flying if you can drive it in a day. But I think that I definitely tried to take that logic into Egypt where it's very different when you are the passenger 
in a car for those long trips versus being the driver in the car. And I hadn't really ever thought about that until we were just passengers. We weren't driving. Dad and I have done lots and lots of road trips in the States where we, we would drive, then you fill up and you change drivers and you fill up and change drivers. And that's just kind of how we used to do things. But it's very different when you are just sitting as the passenger in a car. It's becomes a very long drive. And we had already done the three hours to Dendera and Abydos. We had already done that long journey, which was worth it to me. I loved it. But to then do another basically same six hour round trip again. So to have that both within the same week, I think that would have been way too much for us. So the fly, I definitely would recommend the flying over the driving, even as road trip people. No, I completely agree. And we've, I've definitely started to encourage people to do that more and more, not only for you all, but I mean, to be perfectly honest and a little bit selfish for our sake as well, you know, it's taxing yeah, on the guys yeah, yeah. to have to do a, oh, a I can imagine. seven hour day, two or three days a week. That's a lot. But I, I will say this in, um, in defense of the road trip for some people, if you're maybe a big family, if you're a family of four, five, six, flying to Abu Simbel can be expensive. The right. ticket, you know, it's a 45, it, no, it's like a 20, it's a 25 minute flight, maybe. Man, um, you go up and you come down. That's, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's probably the shortest flight in Egypt, but unlike the flights between Cairo and Luxor and Cairo and Aswan, the flights between Aswan and Abu Simbel, and you always have to fly from Aswan. There are no flights from Cairo. There are no flights from Luxor. You have to stop in Aswan. The flight to Abu Simbel is from Aswan. And that short flight is probably, uh, you know, two to three times the amount of the one hour or hour and a half flight between Cairo and Aswan. So it's expensive compared to the other flights in Egypt. And then if you're a family with three children, uh, you know, or you're a whatever, a group of six or seven, then it may be worth it to just suck it up and drive it because the cost of going in a van split among five or six people is going to be much cheaper than five or six or seven plane tickets round trip to Abu Simbel. So that's the only reason I'd maybe recommend considering going by road. But if you're solo couple, small group of friends, um, you know, paying individually and not, you're not two parents paying for five people or something like that. Uh, Yeah. Going by air is definitely the way to go. And then, so you mentioned you've met some others who did go by road on the Nile cruise you did. Tell us about the Nile cruise because early on when I started doing the podcast, uh, Egypt travel podcast, I used to um, tell people Nile cruises are horrible. Don't do them. And then about five (laughs) years ago, these Dahabea boats started becoming popular. You know, they've always been there, but they didn't become a really popular thing for tourists to do. And they weren't really outfitted for tourist sales until, you know, about five years ago or so. And so when those started becoming available, I was kind of like, hmm, yeah, maybe now cruise. Okay. Yeah. The Dahabeas. Yeah. I can recommend those. And so now I recommend um, Dahabeas to anybody. And that's what you and your dad did, right? The Dahabea cruise. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that it like? Was, it was amazing. It's a, very, it's a very small boat. I think it only had seven I I think it was a seven cabins it's very small it's very intimate uh you kind of sit on the deck you sit and you have your meals with the other guests and everything and we basically stopped we we did four and I think you said most of your guests do three because we had such a long itinerary we had four um I think I would just recommend the three days I think by the end we were kind of ready to kick off and and do other stuff again. But it was kind of a nice break before we kind of had the second half of the trip. It was beautiful. We were worried. My dad gets really bad seasickness and we were kind of concerned about, you know, is it going to like rock or are we going to, are we going to end up getting seasick? And 
there wasn't even a hint of it. There was nothing like that at all. It was so smooth. The Nile is, it's a very strong current, but it's a very quiet current. There's no waves. It doesn't rock or anything. So if people do get seasickness, I think that's a very safe one for them. And definitely. And, and trust me, I've been on whale watching boats with dad. He's very sensitive to <laughs> the, uh, the seasickness. So he had no problems at all the whole time. It was, it was great. We had a cabin in the middle. I chose in the middle because I thought if there was any rocking, it would kind of minimize it, but he didn't have any problems. We sat up on the deck most of the trip, just enjoying the view as the Nile went by. It was awesome. We were the only English, well, we were the only native English speakers on the boat. Everyone else was German. So we, uh, we actually had the tour guide to ourselves because they had a German speaking tour guide. So that was kind of cool. We got to do all of the excursions, just the three of us basically. So it was kind of similar to the rest of the trip, but we had a, we had a really nice time. It was a good change of pace. I think it's more, maybe more geared towards families and maybe like older couples. Cause for me, by the end, I was itching to go out and do stuff. Uh, <laughs> so but yeah, you were saying that you think maybe, so you were on a four night the Habea cruise and then it's important yeah. for people to realize too, there's some logistics around that as well. And, you know, the four night Dahabea cruises start in just a little bit South of Luxor in a little town called Esna and they sail South, which is up river. I have to mm-hmm. think when I'm saying this because the Nile yeah, yeah, flows no, from South it, to North. Yeah. And then, and the funny thing is, so the current goes from South to North, but the wind blows from North to South. And so when you're sailing from Luxor to Aswan, usually the sails are up. When you're sailing from Aswan to Luxor, even though you're going in the direction of the current, the wind's blowing against you. And so mm. they have to use a tugboat for pulling the boat downstream because it's against the wind. But you were sailing. For, so the four night sails go from Luxor, well, Esna, essentially outside of Luxor, to Aswan. And then the three night sails go from Aswan to Luxor. And then the other thing for people to realize about Dahabea is, is that with almost all the Dahabea companies, they have a you know a schedule where it'll sail three nights and then four nights, three nights, four nights. So the sales from Aswan leave on Fridays and they get to Esna mm-hmm. on Mondays. And then the sales from Esna or Luxor leave on Mondays and they get to Aswan on Friday. So that's important with planning a lot too, because for people who want to do a Dahabea, that really does, I won't say constricts your itinerary, but you have to be there on a Friday if you want to do a three-night sale from Aswan. And then that means, you know, if you want to do Abu Simbel, you have to have a day earlier and then Aswan a day earlier. And so we really kind of have to backwards plan sometimes to make Dahabeas Mm. fit in a schedule. But just again, important side notes for people to realize in terms of trip planning. And then, so you sail from Luxor down to Aswan, and then we talked about being in Aswan and Abu Simbel. And then from there, you flew from Aswan to the Red Sea, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something people don't realize too, is that when you are going to the Red Sea from Aswan, it's too long to drive. It would take you about eight hours because you have to go back up to Luxor, which is about three to four, Mm. and then over to the Red Sea, which is another three. If you're going from Luxor, you can drive because it's just three o'clock, three o'clock. It's three hours straight across the desert. Yeah. And then if you're going from Cairo, it's going to be about five to six. So it's kind of like, eh, you probably want to fly unless you have a really good reason to drive. But you all were coming from Aswan. So you flew and you had, and again, there are no direct flights most of the year from Mm. Aswan to the Red Sea. So you had to fly Aswan back to Cairo, connect and onto the Red Sea. And so once you arrived at the Red Sea, tell us a little bit about um, what were you expecting? What did you have in your mind in terms of what the Red Sea would be about? What was it like? Did you try to park the Red Sea? Did it work? (laughs) So uh, I kind of wanted to do the Red Sea as almost like a tick box, like, okay, we've done it kind of thing. Because I live in Australia, there's beaches everywhere. I didn't see a point in doing 
beach. I'm not really a beach person, even though I live near some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. I'm not really a beachy person. I was like, I'm going to be bored. You know, what am I going to do there? But for dad, I was like, okay, it's a nice couple of days for him to chill before we kind of finish up the trip. And I went there and went, oh man, I wish we had longer here. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am never going to get bored. This place is incredible. I absolutely loved it. It was totally surprising to me. I did not stop the whole time I was there. I had an awesome time. Dad was able to chill while I was out adventuring around. And um, it was a perfect combination for I think any kind of traveler, you know, if you're someone who likes to get out and go do a million things, you can go do a million things in Soma Bay and never stop. But if you want to just sit on the beach and watch the water, you can also just do that. It was truly, we were very sad to leave there. We were, we were very, very upset as we drove away and watched it in the rear view mirror. So I remember when I came back to Egypt at the end of your trip and saw you again at the end, right after you had finished up that rest experience, I remember you and your dad telling me, we almost didn't leave. Like you almost didn't see us because we almost, we didn't want to leave the Red Sea. We almost decided to change our plane tickets and stay. So you did in the end um, leave the Red Sea and the last piece of your trip was going to Alexandria. So a lot of people don't go to Alexandria and I tell people there's some specific reasons why one would go to Alexandria. And then if you're not into these things, then it might not be for you. And so just real quick to let everyone else know, Alexandria is a different city. It's, it's a d- different vibe. It's a coastal city. It's Mediterranean. It's different from Cairo. It's big like Cairo, but it's different from Cairo. But the biggest reason to go to Alexandria, if you're a tourist to Egypt, is because of the Greco-Roman history there. It was the capital of the Greco-Roman dynasties in Egypt. So that's really the reason most people go to Alexandria. Why did you want to include Alexandria on the trip? And then what did you think of it when you actually made it there at the end of the trip? I think, you know, we wanted to see as much of Egypt as we could. We kind of got everything. Also, I think Western culture, very focused on Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, all of that. That's very, you know, ingrained in a lot of movies, pop culture, that kind of thing. So I think we wanted to just get the whole experience, kind of see everywhere. So we had the time, it made sense to go. We had a great time. It was a beautiful city. It is very, very different than everywhere else. I have to say probably had the best coffee I've ever had in my life anywhere. I tipped the guy that made my coffee so much because it was (laughs) so good. (laughs) And the next morning I went and got another one. And then he even offered to make me a coffee so that I could take it in the car to go back to Cairo with, which I took him up on. And yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> so nice. I And where was know, this was, magical coffee? Where was it? That was at the Cecil or is it a Steigenberger? It, yeah, it's or, by the Steigenberger, but it's the historic yeah, Cecil Hotel. The, now it's Steigenberger. Yeah. Cecil. Yeah. There, there is a guy there who makes amazing coffee for the breakfast that's there. It was so good. I couldn't believe it. I am a major coffee snob and it was, <laughs> it was awesome. So wow. was this in the yeah, restaurant, no. like the main restaurant on the first yeah, floor? Yeah, it's in the main restaurant where the breakfast is served. And oh, wow. yeah, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> okay. That's quite a recommendation. I'm going to literally put that on my list to go try next time. <laughs> So Ash had a guide um, that I work with uh, who I love like a sister also named Zahra in Alexandria. And I don't know if I told you this, but 
she is literally famous all over Egypt. If you ask a guide in Aswan or Luxor or Cairo, uh, do you know Zahra from Alexandria? And they're going to be like, oh my God, Zahra. Oh yeah, I love her. She's <laughs> I mean, she's really famous. She's and you really can well tell known. why. She's you can tell why, yeah. yeah. She is amazing. I'm so, so, so lucky to have her and be able to work with her. And I love her. The passion and love she has for her city and the connection. And again, that's the thing that in having people who are on the ground, they're local and they love their city. They love their history. Um, they have a personal connection. You know, she was telling us stories about this is where her grandma used to live. And this is the history of their family near here. And it was awesome. It's a personal touch you can't get with just having some random guide from somewhere that's just reading you a history prompt. Basically, you know, you're not getting that really local knowledge. And, you know, she is so passionate about Alexandria and loves Alexandria so much that I think even if some people might be inclined to miss it, because it's not Cairo, and it's not Luxor, it's very different. But the passion and love that someone has for their city, it just brings it to life in a way that you get to experience with them and through them. And it made it a very wonderful personal touch on the end of our trip. That's a really good point too, that you just reminded me of because another, and again, this is one of those things where people just you know have to decide this is for some people and not for other people. And so, you know, you've mentioned a couple of different people, like our staff, our local staff that you met and spent time with, who guided you around, drove you around. And that actually reflects an intentional decision that we make internally about how we like to do trips. And it's different from how other companies do trips too. So I just want to mention it real quick so that people can also maybe factor this in when they're selecting a tour company or an experience. And that is basically, you know, some, some companies like to, and there are reasons to do this. I mean, it's, it's not, one's not right, one's not wrong, but, you know, some companies will give you a guide and then that guide will go around all over Egypt with you. You have the same guide in Cairo, Luxor, Aswan, Alexandria. They go everywhere with you. They fly with you. They stay in the hotels with you. You know, there's consistency there, you know, and you get to know them over a longer period of time. We don't do that because I really like for you to meet multiple people, first of all. I want you to not just have one new guide friend. I want you to have five or three or however long you're there. But also, like you mentioned, there's a big difference in someone who is from Cairo showing you around Alexandria versus someone who is like 10th generation Alexandrian and their family is part of the history of the city. And they can tell you about, yeah, my grandmother lived here. And then after the revolution of 1952, we had to move. And then, I mean, they're part of the history of the city. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, same thing down in, um, you know, Luxor and Aswan, you know, you were with Dina in Luxor and Aida in Aswan and Dina lives in Luxor. Her family's there. Aida lives in Aswan. She's there every day. And so there's some very practical reasons why I like that too. For example, somebody from Aswan is not going to know the security guards at the pyramids and it's yeah. you know yeah, yeah. for example you show you show up five minutes after the time where they're trying to close the gates and you're like please let us in you know somebody from cairo is going to know them personally and see them every day they're going to be able to get you in and, and you know it just smooths yeah. things a little bit better whereas somebody from aswan it's not only not going to be from there it's not going to have that local personal experience there but you know there's a lot of reasons but that's one thing we do differently and it's not just us other companies do this as well and so that's just something i would suggest to people that you look at and consider if you're booking with a company are they going to have you with the same guy the whole time in egypt or are they going to have yeah. a different guide in each place? And there are pros and cons to each. I like having a different guide in each place. What do you yeah. think though? I mean, I, it sounds like you're saying you liked meeting multiple people. Oh. I really loved meeting multiple people. Definitely after we had Maha, we wanted to take Maha everywhere with us because Maha is amazing. And dad was just ready. He was like, you're coming with us for the next 25 days, right? Like you're, you're coming, you're coming with us. And we really loved her and we were very sad to say goodbye to her, but we, we did, we had an amazing time meeting other people and, and experiencing 
their city through their eyes. And there's definitely people who know the city and are familiar with the city and are familiar with the people who are there and familiar with things that change because sometimes they know that something's open and it might say that it's open online, but they know that it opens at a different time. And especially during Ramadan, all of that kind of things, opening times and closing times change for everything. And there was a museum we went to in Luxor that it was posted on the door wrong, but all of the local guides knew what time it actually opened. And that's just stuff as, you know, if you're trying to do it by yourself, you're going to rock up and it's going to be closed. Or, you know, if you're with some big tour group, they're all going to come off on the bus and go, "Uh oh, this is closed kind of thing. And you're going to be in a jam, but these local guides, they know. And so, you know, it was sad to say goodbye to people as we changed guides everywhere. But I think we would have had a very different experience had it just been one guide the whole time. And you get to see Egypt through different people's perspectives. Just like if you meet someone in New York, their perspective of the U.S. is going to be different than in Chicago or in Dallas or in Salt Lake. They're all going to have different perspectives of of the country. And so it was kind of nice to to get those insights and those perspectives and develop those relationships with people who see you know Egypt very differently and see their cities differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I really recommend whether people are doing it on their own with another company, whatever, you need to just meet more people in Egypt. Like the more people you can work with, the more people you can you know, interact with, um, the better of an experience you're going to have. And that goes for not just guides and drivers, but you know, people in the street as well. And you know, you have to be careful when you're meeting people on the street because Egypt is shyster land and you know, there <laughs> it's a it's a poor country, it's overpopulated, people are you know in some tough economic conditions there. But that brings me to the point of I want to ask you about safety, how you felt when you were walking around in Cairo, in Luxor, in Alexandria, you mentioned going, you know, sometimes like, for example, you're at Red Sea, you said your dad was relaxing, you were off on your own. How did you feel safety-wise and comfort-wise in the streets in Cairo with your dad and then on your own, and especially being a female there, did you experience any harassment in the street, stares, anything like that? Tell us a little bit about your experience as a female going around Egypt. I never felt unsafe. I never felt concerned about anything. I even went for a sunset horse ride, which meant that I was coming back by myself in the dark. And that can be a concern, but I walked the streets for about 10 minutes, hopped on a boat, came back across the Nile, walked to the hotel, and I didn't experience any issues, no problems. I think the biggest thing is vendors and street vendors if you even glance in their direction, they're going to come try to sell you something and try to harass you. Um, I never had anyone be what I would call aggressive. They're persistent. They're definitely persistent. They'll walk after you and show you things and want to engage with you. And everything's been slow because of COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of places have closed. They've been doing it tough for all of this time. I can understand that they're just trying to make a buck. They're just trying to hustle and hustle and hustle. And I appreciate that hustle. Dad was very, very bad at not speaking to people because he's a very friendly guy. He'll make a friend with anyone. He'll leave, you know, knowing everybody's names and about their families. I would leave him alone. I left him alone at Soma Bay to go into a shop. And he had been talking when I came out. I had been there for like maybe five or 10 minutes. And he came out and he had the whole life story of the security guard that he sat down next to. And I was like, when did you talk to this guy about this? I was in there for like five minutes. And so dad would look at a vendor and then all of a sudden be engaged in like a conversation with someone. And so I had to inform all of our guides, you need to 
yell at him or yell at the vendor because otherwise we're never going to go where we need to go because <laughs> we like we are going to get roped into all kinds of things because the best method is just to kind of ignore and keep walking which I think as a woman you're very used to just ignoring people and just keep walking because it's a safety danger thing and I was very good at it and he was very bad at it. So Maha would protect him from the vendors and everything when we were at the pyramids or things like that. So it was quite funny. But in terms of other safety and other things like that, I felt very comfortable going out. I never really felt like anyone was going to harass me. Most of the time, if people were going to say anything, they were just trying to sell something or taxis. The taxi people are very pushy. Like, do you need a ride? Do you need a ride? And I'd be like, no, I'm just walking. It's cool. You know, they'd stop, they'd pull over and talk to you, which can feel a little threatening but you just say no I'm good and you just keep going and no one's aggressive about it they try to make a buck but no one's going to be aggressive towards you about anything or at least was my experience I never had anyone be aggressive in terms of like looks and stares it was mostly kids there was nothing ever inappropriate it was always kids like amazed you know like <laughs> at a tourist especially when we were in more rural areas they clearly don't see a lot of western tourists so they were quite fascinated and they were looking and I had a girl come up to me. Um, she was like a, a young teenage girl and asked if she could take a photo with me. And I thought that was funny. So I did. And she ran off. One of her friends looked totally mortified that she'd asked for a photo and they ran off and went back to whatever they were doing. So I definitely never felt threatened. I never felt, um, I know my dad was concerned about safety and, and those kinds of things, but I didn't really ever feel uneasy or, or anything like that. So I'm glad you mentioned that about the kids coming up because that's actually something I hadn't thought about for a while, but it's a, a frequent occurrence, you know, with tourists, especially, you know, your, your hair is like a, is it blondish brown or how would you describe your hair color? Uh, I would say it's it brown, blonde? but it's also short. Brown. I have a short haircut. Like I've got the undercut and the bangs fringe kind of thing. So it's a bit funky and different. And I, I don't know if there's a lot of women that wear that kind of hair, you know what I mean? Or that they're not used to seeing that kind of thing. So I think they were kind of you know, I've got big glasses and I was wearing like a lot of like long dresses and everything. So I think it was just a different attire, different hair, different accent, different everything. So I think yeah. they were a bit mesmerized when we saw some kids that, that was mostly in Cairo. We saw some kids that Mahab mentioned that she could tell from their Arabic that they were from a rural area. So I think it was kids that had come in for into town for Eid that were asking for a lot of photos. And then I got the same thing when we were in more rural areas, like we were doing the Nile cruise and we'd get off the boat and go walk kind of into the towns and villages. And I would get more looks there, but no one was ever inappropriate. Like it was mostly like I found as a woman, especially it was young girls. They were waving and smiling and trying to engage with me and always saying, hello, hello, hello. Like when I went on my horse rides, I felt like I was a celebrity because I'm walking through these towns on the horse and they're going, hello. And like, there's little kids that are, it must be the only English word they know is hello. And they're going, hello, hello. You know, they're two or three years old. So it was very cute. Yeah, I hear that a lot, especially from people, you know, like you mentioned, who have a hairstyle that's not common in Egypt or blonde hair, people who have bright eyes, things like that, you know, especially the kids, uh, they haven't traveled, they haven't, especially if they're from a village, haven't seen a lot of Westerners. And so, I mean, they find it really beautiful. And sometimes they come up and they want to like touch your hair, you have blonde hair, especially on the <laughs> No, I never had, I never me, had that. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, sometimes I've had seen that happen and people are like, well, it was weird at first, but then I just realized they just thought it was really pretty and they wanted to touch it and see what it felt like. It's hair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that's something that I didn't, I forgot about too, that happens a lot is kids will want to engage with you. They sometimes want to come take pictures of you or with you. And um, it weirds people out at first and they realize, they literally think I'm a celebrity. They think I'm, yeah. you know, they want to take <laughs> pictures with me and put on their Facebook account and that make, gives them higher social status in their mind. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of flattering. Yeah. Um, and then finally on your, at the end of your trip, you did another thing that I really like when people do, and that's take a, you know, a free day at the end, just back in Cairo, just to, you know, either relax, de-stress. Sometimes people find things they want to go back and do again, or, you know, just to have an open and flexible day for whatever may come up. And, uh, there's nothing else you want to do than just to relax before long trip back home. And I think, um, you guys came back to Cairo and, and did one or two days. Yeah. We did a day of going to the mosque and the churches and everything. And then we had a day and kind of, for me, it was almost two full days because my flight was in the evening. Dad's flight was in the morning. So I basically had a whole nother day compared to him, but I used it to shop for souvenirs for people for back home. And that shopping center was unreal, like eight levels of just incredible shops, just shop after shop after shop. And I found all of the gifts that I hadn't kind of picked up along the way. So it was awesome to be able to kind of just finish that stuff up, you know, pack the bags, sort all the bags out, weigh everything, make sure it was all level, and then just kind of chill and hang around and get ready to go back to the real world. (laughs) And so that was, let's see, when did you get back? About three weeks ago, four weeks ago? Yeah, about three. I think it's three now. Three, I think. I think this is my third weekend home. Yeah. Okay. And are you ready to go back to Egypt yet? Can we see yes, you again yes, sometime soon? Yes, already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, you were talking about being so many things to see there and people kind of think I'm joking, but I tell people I first moved to Egypt 20 years ago and I mean, I go there, you know, I work in tourism there. I'm there all the time and there are still many places in Egypt that I haven't even been. And so, I mean, I tell people, most people do consider Egypt to be like a once in a lifetime thing, a one and done. They go there, they want to see the highlights. But the thing is, you know, I keep telling people, especially now that the gym is opening, because that's something huge. And it's something that no one who's been to Egypt so far will have seen. And so I I do kind of like to plant the idea in people's head that even if you've seen the pyramids, even if you've seen the tombs and temples, there's so much other stuff that most tourists don't get to see on that first trip. And now with the gym opening, it is worth considering a trip back there. And going to the pyramids, the second time is a completely different experience. You know, you see things, you do things, you see it in a way, you experience it in a way that's different from that first time when everything's new. And now you have the experience of being there. You know what Egypt's like, you're more prepared for things and you experience it in a different way than a first time visitor. So just something to think about, you know, maybe post gym. Um, I'm going to come visit you there in Australia. I promised you that because I haven't been to Australia yet. I'm one of those people that when I say I'm going to come visit you, I do actually show up. So I'll be there and you can be my tour guide. Ready. And I'll see you. Yes, absolutely. And I hopefully we'll be able to see you back in, in Egypt again. And actually with that, I'll go ahead. Let me, let me wrap up this episode because you've been so, so extremely generous with your time. I always say, especially on these podcasts, I'm like, I'm going to talk about this topic and I'm going to, it's going to be about 20 or 30 minutes. And then it ends up being two hours. And I'm just like, uh, but you know what? The reason actually I didn't want to wrap it up and cut it short was because you were given such good, insightful, valuable information, things that I don't even think to talk about. You were causing neurons to fire in my brain that wouldn't have happened on on my own and just doing a monologue. And so I just thought it was a really good conversation and I wanted to get out. You know, I'm a huge fan of thoroughness of more info rather than less. And you were just talking about such good things. I didn't want to um, to stop you or to cut you off or to not uh, let you continue talking and, and switch topics. And, you know, even though this has been kind of a definitely a long episode, I really think that these episodes where someone comes on 
person other than me talking about their experience, different set of eyes, different experience in Egypt is really helpful to others. Because, you know, like you said, there are so many things you were looking for, you wanted to hear about, and you and your dad both gave some great feedback about things that you were skeptical about, you know, when you were looking, even with us, things that you were like, I wish I would have seen this from you. I wish you would have talked about this or covered this. And then that was so helpful for us. And I just wanted to just let you talk uninterrupted so that uh, we can get all that out for everybody else. Well, with that, Ashley, just let me say thank you so, so much for doing this episode with us. I'm sure all the listeners to this podcast are extremely appreciative and um, got a lot out of what you said. And so with that, let me just say thank you. And then let me also say that we're going to do another episode with Ashley. So Ashley, she was there a long time. She's got a lot of experience now with Egypt and feedback. And so I'm not going to spoil what it is, but it's a really unique episode. I really wanted to do this because I think there's a lot for the audience and for myself and our team to learn from what we're going to talk about next. And so I'm going to tease that. I'm going to leave it there. And then we'll have Ashley join us again in the Egypt Travel Podcast. Again, thank you so much, Ashley, for this. This is amazing. Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode of Egypt Travel Podcast. We'll be back soon.